when you drive by? Yeah, me too. So to me, there's four categories. There's the, these to me are the classic church signs. Lots of puns, God's not looking for spiritual, or God's looking for spiritual fruit, not religious nuts, that kind of thing going on. Not to be stereotypical, you see these typically in rural contexts, maybe, more than anywhere else. I noticed some other kinds, there's some, Scott or uh, Greg to the next one, these are kind of the self-deprecating humor to try to pull you in from the back door. Some of those work, some of those don't. I think there's another category. These are much more antagonistic. They usually revolve around hell in some way. We kind of have the trump card that we can play. I'll tell you, the one to me that I don't understand is I kissed a girl and I liked it, then I went to hell. It's a song. I was like, how do you know that? That you've already gone to hell. Unless they're having a seance, which would be a whole nother. And then there are others. These, to me, I just don't understand at all. Why you put them out. That top one you probably know is from a church in Texas. So this one, I don't know if y'all can read it because it's dark. It says, in Sweden, it's illegal to teach a seal to balance a ball on its nose. And it's not from a church in... I don't understand that at all. Out of everything you can put on a sign, why that one? So church signs, y'all look at them. Take a picture. You can send it to us if you find a good one. All right, this is Mark 6. Starting in verse 45. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because all, excuse me, because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Just a few things about this. I've read this a lot this week, and it doesn't make any sense to me, or it did not make any sense to me um, until probably Friday morning. I just, I didn't get it. To me, this whole thing is contrived. It says, the NIV says, Jesus made them get into the boat. The word's actually compelled. So he's just fed the 5,000. If you read John 6, 14 and 15, this crowd, after they see this miracle, it says that they want to uh, make him king by force. So he disperses the crowd. He makes his disciples get in a boat. He says, I want you to cross this sea. It's probably eight miles wide at its um, largest, the Sea of Galilee. And then he goes up on a mountainside to pray. So uh, the first thing for me was Jesus set this whole thing up. I'm not sure why he made the disciples go ahead without him. We come up with spiritual reasons. He wanted to pray. He wanted to recharge. He needed to. He's trying to diffuse this kind of energy in the crowd that wasn't good. They were trying to make him king, and he wasn't going to be the kind of king that they were looking for. The Bible doesn't say any of that. It just says he compelled them to get into a boat. And then the, the thing that to me it's even more interesting is the way he kind of lets this whole thing simmer. The Bible says he saw them in the middle of the lake at, at evening, which I'm assuming is like 6 o'clock. Um, John says they'd rowed three or three and a half miles out. So again, if it's eight miles at its widest, pretty close to the middle, he sees them at the evening. 
And it says he goes to them at three in the at uh, the fourth watch, which is three in the morning. So there's nine hours of them struggling pretty good. There's twelve guys. At least four of them were experienced fishermen. They all knew how to row a boat, and they went three miles in nine hours. That's not not a professional rower, but that doesn't seem like good pace to me. And he sees them straining for that entire time, apparently, the way it reads to me. As they get out there and the wind's coming at them, maybe that's one of the reasons he had to make them get in the boat. They're like, you're crazy. We can't get across the lake. He made them go anyway. They don't make any progress. And he kind of lets that whole thing fester for nine hours. And then when he actually makes a decision to go, so he's walking across this lake, again, three or three and a half miles. I don't know how long that takes. If you walk a, what do you walk, a 20-minute mile, 15? What do people walk? So there you go. It takes 45 minutes or an hour, I guess, unless he does another miracle and somehow maybe he's skipping quickly across the lake. It says he's walking, so he's... Now, the NIV said he was about to pass them by. That's actually not a very good translation. A more accurate translation is he intended to or he wanted to or he desired to pass them by. His intention was to keep on going. I don't know what that's about. So here are these guys who you love. You put them in a boat. You put them out in the middle of the ocean, or the middle of the lake. They're struggling, and you're just going to keep on going. I don't know if he's waving as he walks by or what he's doing to them. It doesn't make any sense to me why he would create this scenario and then not solve it. Is he just showing off, hey, look what I can do? I'm not sure what's going on there. There's a clue in verse 52, if I can find that. It says, they were completely amazed. For they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. Last week, uh, Penny looked at the feeding of the 5,000, and she took it from this angle of saying Jesus meets needs, which is 100% true. He meets our immediate needs, he meets the perceived needs of others, he meets our real or our ultimate needs. All of that is true and right and good and on the money. I think there's something else going on in that story as well. Mark is tying together the feeding of the 5,000 and this walking on the water story. He uses the word immediately. He refers back to the feeding of the 5,000 in this story. He wants us to see them as a unit, and they all happen within 12 hours of one another. As soon as he dismisses the crowd, he sends his disciples out, goes up on a mountain, walks down across the water to see them. And then the next morning, you can pick up in John, I think it's the rest of John 6, and see what happens the next morning when he sees the crowd again. So he wants us to see these things as... uh, a unit. He wants us to see them put together. If you look at verse 35, if you flip back over there, this is from the feeding of the 5,000. Let me read you this. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus said, you give them something to eat. He didn't have to feed them. The disciples weren't going to him saying, hey, turn some rocks into bread perform a miracle to feed these guys. He said, just stop talking. End it. Say amen so these guys can go to the surrounding villages and countrysides and get themselves some food. So in my world, a miracle was not necessary. Maybe a miracle is never necessary. They're always an expression of God's grace. But this was not a dire need for these folks. The disciples bring it to Jesus and say, hey, why don't you just wrap it up So these guys can go eat. And he turns it back on them and says, you do something about it. Again, to me, he's created this scenario 
honestly, somewhat artificially, just like he did with the walking on water thing. He's the one that put him out there. I wonder when he was praying on the hillside if he was praying for the wind and the waves. We don't know what he was praying for. And I think that will unfold as we go, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if that was part of what he was praying for, is that God would frustrate them crossing the way. He does the same thing with them here. He creates a scenario somewhat artificially that puts the disciples right in the middle. If you look at the miracles throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the disciples are on the periphery almost all the time. A lot of times we don't even, we don't see them. We just assume they're kind of part of the crowd. But in these two, they're front and center and everybody else recedes to the background. Even in the feeding of the 5,000, we don't know anything about the crowd. We just know there are 5,000 people. And we don't even know that till the end. It's almost a footnote. The focus is on Jesus and the disciples and his interaction with them. And the same thing with this walking on water deal. It's between him and them. I don't know why. He waited until 3 in the morning when nobody else is out on the lake. Everybody's asleep. He could have gone earlier, and he didn't. It's almost like he's waiting until it's just them. And he does the same thing again with this feeding of the 5,000. Kind of the picture to me of that is he takes this little kid's lunch, and he breaks it up, and the guys are wearing these big robes. And in the fold of each robe, he puts a little bit of food. And says, all right, y'all go and hand that out. Good luck. And so each person they go to, they got to pull a little bit of food out and give it. Boom, boom, boom. All the way around. It's all on them. Every time they reach into the fold of their robe, they have to trust that there's going to be something there. It seems to revolve around them in a lot of ways. A sign in the Bible always points to a greater reality. All of John's miracles, and excuse me, all of Jesus' miracles in the Gospel of John are referred to as signs or miraculous signs. That's how he frames them. He's saying what Jesus is doing, this event that you're witnessing, it's pointing to something greater than the event itself. And I think that's what's going on here in Mark 6. What Mark wants us to see is these two events. Yes, they were miracles, but it wasn't just about the event. Those two things are pointing to a reality greater than the event itself. They're the, the purpose of these things. It wasn't necessarily to feed these people. That's wonderful. He had compassion for them. It wasn't to help the disciples, although, sure, that's a nice byproduct. It was for the disciples to see who Jesus really was. He's trying to reveal his identity in the midst of these two miraculous events. They're signs that are pointing to something greater. And the issue, I think, for him is people get stuck on the signs all the time. It says the disciples were amazed a few months ago when we looked at Mark 4 after he calms the storm, and that was one that there was a dire need. They thought they were going to die. He's asleep in the front of the boat. You remember that? And he wakes up and calms everything down. It says they were terrified. Throughout Mark, if you read after he says something or does something, the response of the crowd, they were amazed at the words that he said. They were amazed because he spoke with authority. They were amazed because of the healings that he did. They were always amazed, but amazed is not enough. He's looking for people to move beyond amazement. If you're hungry and you're on the interstate and you see a sign for Cracker Barrel, you don't pull under the billboard and wait for the waitress to come and take your order. You don't do that. It's pointing you to a restaurant. We do that. That's what's happening with these signs. People are camping out around them. They're getting stuck on what he's doing. And he's, I think, trying. Wake up, guys. This is towards the end of his it's only Mark 6, but it's, it's towards the end of his ministry, probably the last year. Things are starting to wrap up. We said before, he's got some clock in his head that we, don't, we can't see it, but there's, it's ticking because he's on the move. 
And he's trying to get them to see who he really is. And they're getting stuck on the stuff that he's doing, and they're not getting it. And these are the 12 guys who he's going to, they're his guys, who he's going to entrust all of this with. He's trying to get their attention. If you were a, a Jew, you knew the Old Testament, that was your Bible, and you heard a phrase like this from Mark 6. This is how Mark explains Jesus' motivation. So he gets away to this solitary place. It says, many who saw them leaving recognized them. They ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. If you heard that phrase, sheep without a shepherd, it would remind you of something from Numbers. So Moses, he's leading the people of Israel. They're about to walk into the promised land. He doesn't get to go. So God takes him up on a mountain and says, this is where everybody's headed. You're going to die. Everybody else, this is where they're going. And this is Moses' response in verses 15 through 17 of Numbers 27. Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over the community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. That became a promise, sheep without a shepherd. Moses said, who's next? Joshua. The Greek form of Joshua is Jesus. The Lord saves the disciples. It's not clicking for them. Ezekiel 34, 1 through 6 says this. Also, if you were a Jew, when you heard sheep without a shepherd, it might remind you of this passage. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. That's the leaders. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who take care of themselves, who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourself with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you don't take care of the flock. You've not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. There's that idea again, sheep without a shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. And in verse 23, this is what God says he's going to do about it. I will place over them, I'll place over my people one shepherd, my servant David, and he will lead them, he will tend them, and be their shepherd. If you're a Jew, that's what's going through your mind when you know he's motivated. Sheep without a shepherd, you're thinking back. To Moses, you're thinking to this promise from Ezekiel. In Deuteronomy, I think it's 1815, God says to Moses, I'm going to raise up from among your brothers another prophet just like you. If you look in the gospel, sometimes the word prophet is capitalized. It's because they were looking for a specific, particular person who is going to fulfill this role of the prophet that God had promised back in Deuteronomy 18. A prophet just like Moses, and God says, and they need to listen to him. That's what Moses says to the people. God's going to raise up a prophet just like me, like Moses, and y'all need to listen to him. When Jesus feeds the 5,000 in the desert, it should remind these 12 disciples who spent at least two years with him. It should remind them of Moses in the desert with the people of Israel where every morning when they wake up, there's this stuff all over the ground called manna that they're supposed to eat. It doesn't. I think there's a, I don't know if Jesus gets frustrated. I think he probably does in a holy way. Frustration without sin. If we could all figure out that line to walk, that'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? And he's there somehow frustrated. You, y'all don't get it. 
can I be any more clear without just coming out and saying it? Everything that I've done should point you back to the fact you're looking for this shepherd king, this guy who's a second Moses from the line of David. Right here, it's me. Look what I did to prove it. I'm not just telling you it's who I am. Look what I did to prove to you guys. Y'all are the ones that actually handed the bread out. Rather than me turning all these rocks into bread where everybody just gets what they want, you physically fed 12,000 people. There's 5,000, I'm sure there's 5,000 women and 2,000 kids there. Easy, 12,000. There's 12 men, 1,000 each, pulling bits from your robe. How much do you give the first guy? It says they ate so much that they were all full. You keep going back to the well over and over again. And they're not understanding what he's doing. So he says, get in the boat and go. And I think he goes up on, I don't know, I think he goes up on a hill and he prays, God, make it hard. Some wind, some waves. Not because he's mad at them, because he's about to do this. He's about to walk on water. It's one thing for him to say, I'm the second Moses, I'm this shepherd king, I'm the Messiah. Everybody knew God was going to send a Messiah. They didn't think it would be, he would be divine. He would be a human who was divinely empowered by God to accomplish certain things. So for Jesus to say he's the Messiah, he doesn't fit the mold, but, but for him to do what he's about to do, it's a completely different category. When you see a guy walking on water, if you're a Jew, you know the Old Testament, this is what you're thinking. Psalm seventy-seven, nineteen: God, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. Job 9, 8, he alone, God alone, stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. So you see a guy walking to you and you're thinking, only God does that stuff. Nobody else walks on water. This idea of passing by, that's what said Jesus was going to pass by them. If you're a Jew, you know the Old Testament. Maybe it reminds you of a story in Exodus 33. Moses comes down the mountain. He's got these two big slabs of rock with the Ten Commandments written on him. He gets down there and his brother Aaron, who's his right-hand man, has created a calf. He said he didn't make it. He just threw some gold into a, the fire and a calf popped out. So there you go. So there's this calf and everybody's worshiping it. And Moses is ticked and he breaks the Ten Commandments and God says, I'm about to, there's going to be a plague and it's not going to be good. And Moses is distraught. He's the leader of these folks. Imagine that. You're the leader. You're gone for a month and you come back and that happened. And so this is what God says to Moses in Exodus 33, 22. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of a rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. This idea, God is going to pass by Moses to encourage him, to strengthen him. It might remind you of another story in 1 Kings 19. Elijah, he's a prophet. He has this confrontation with these 450 prophets of Baal, these false prophets. He says, let's see whose God is real. You ask your God to send fire and I'll ask mine and we'll see who wins. They create this altar thing and Elijah says, y'all go first. And they're dancing around and cutting themselves and chanting and doing all of these things, these gyrations, to get their God to send some fire down, and nothing happens. Then Elijah takes a bull and sacrifices it, puts it on an altar, dumps a whole bunch of water on it, and prays. Whoosh, fire from heaven. Burns the whole thing up. Bathsheba, who's as wicked as anyone who ever lived, says to him, she's the queen, you're going to die today. And he takes off like a scared little kid. And he runs, and he runs, he runs to the desert, and he starts pouting, God, it'd be better if I'd never been born. He's out there in this wilderness for 40 days. 
And God says this to him in 1 Kings 19.11. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. If you're a Jew and Jesus is saying, I'm going to pass by, that rem- hey, there's some pretty big guys in our history, Elijah and Moses. God passed by them too when they were in the midst of a personal crisis. So I say that to say, that's why I wonder if Jesus is, he's praying for this, I wonder. I can't say definitively. I'm a little over 50%. I think he's praying for this situation for them. Y'all struggle a little bit. Get frustrated. Get mad at me. We can't go back because Jesus said we had to cross the other side. We're not making any progress. He calmed the storm last time. Why isn't he doing anything now? He can see them. Maybe they can turn around and see him. What's he doing sitting up there? How long is he going to wait? Who knows what was going on in their minds griping with each other, frustrated. I think he's up there saying, more wind, more waves. Creating this environment so then he can pass by them to say, hey, I'm the guy here. I'm not just a miracle worker. I'm not just a great moral teacher. I'm not just the smartest religious scholar you've ever been around. I'm God. It is I, or I am he, he says. Anybody can say that. It's an emphatic I. That's a technical term. If you, and that phrase, it's two words, that phrase is used throughout the Old Testament when God discloses who he is. Exodus 3.14, who is God? I am who I am. Isaiah 43.25, I, even I am he who, holds out your, who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Isaiah 48.12, listen to me, Jacob, Israel, whom I have called. I am he. I'm the first and I'm the last. Anybody can say I am he. I don't know too many people who say I am he when they're walking on water. You put those things together. Using that terminology should remind them that's how God has disclosed himself, how he's revealed himself to our ancestors. This idea, don't be afraid, take courage, don't be afraid. That's what God says. If you read throughout the Old Testament, when God says, I am he, almost always, not oftentimes after that, he follows it up with, now don't be afraid. Isaiah 41, 13, I'm the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, don't fear, I will help you. Isaiah 44, 2, this is what the Lord says, he who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you, don't be afraid, O Jacob, my servant. What Jesus is put all that together. I can say, I'm he, don't be afraid, again, but I can't say it when I'm walking on water. You've got a guy walking on water, passing by all of this, saying, I am he, don't be afraid. That checks some boxes, if you know the Old Testament, which these guys are supposed to. It's supposed to point and say, he's God. I read something on a science blog. I wish I could remember the technical term. I can't. This guy was talking about Jesus walking on water and saying it could happen if he used cornstarch. Apparently, cornstarch has a very particular physical property where it's not, it's kind of like lava. It can go, have this, there's this something, uh, temperature where it's at, where it's not quite solid and not quite liquid. And that what Jesus could have done is build a trough three and a half miles out, <laughs> fill it with cornstarch, and then walk on it at three o'clock in the morning with nobody watching. He's either saying, he's saying he's God. We can say we don't believe you. But we can't say he's not saying it. He's either God or he's not. He doesn't leave us the room of saying he's just a great religious scholar. He's a great example for what a human being should be. He helped out a lot of people. 
No. He's saying, I am God. Are you in or are you out? You can be out. But you've got to be out. You can't say that's not who he really said he was. And that's what he wants these 12 men to see. He's not walking on a trough filled with cornstarch. He's walking on water, passing them by, saying, I am he, don't be afraid. All of that echoes God, 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 God. Applications for us, simple. Obvious one first. Jesus is the, he's this shepherd king. Shepherds lead, shepherds feed, and shepherds protect. You need any of that? That's who he is to you. You read, go back and read the rest of Ezekiel 34. If you want to know what a shepherd should be, it'll show you the positives and the negatives. That's who he is. He says, I'm going to be their shepherd. Nobody's taking care of these guys. I'm going to step in and I'm going to do it. I'm going to bind up those who are wounded. I'm not going to take advantage of them and use them for my own purposes. Read that. That's who he is for us. But he's not just that. He's also God. Jesus isn't our boyfriend. He's not just a forgiver of our sins. He's not just our savior. He's God. And that should affect the way we relate to him. How we treat him. We're talking for the next six weeks, kind of weaving through all this, this idea of being a living sacrifice and what it looks like to live a life of worship, not just on Sunday mornings, but during the week. Knowing that he's God, that impacts what it means to worship him. How we relate to him, regardless of our circumstances or our feelings or whether or not we feel like he's doing what we want him to do or acting the way we think he should act. All that is irrelevant if he's God. He has a claim upon us. and We respond to that in worship. Another thing that for all of us, if you've said yes to following him, I want you to hear this. There are times where he will, you can either say orchestrate circumstances or just take advantage of the circumstances depending on your theology. I don't care. Pick one. For the sole purpose of you getting to know him better. I think he put the disciples on the spot. Here, you feed them. I'm not going to, you feed them. He didn't say it, but he wanted them to feel that. Mm, mm. Every time they reached into the fold of their robe. They had to trust. He's, he's doing something, I guess. And then he ran them through the ringer. Y'all get on the boat. I'm going to go pray for a storm. He does it on purpose. He lets them sit out there for nine hours. They're not about to die. It's not a dire thing. They're frustrated. They don't like their circumstances. And he doesn't do anything about it. He wants them to see who he is, and so he creates a scenario where he can reveal himself. And that might not sit well with you, but we need to know that's the most important thing for him. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that you know me. That's what he's going for. If you said yes to following him, he is not content for you to keep him as the forgiver of your sins and the Savior who you'll check in with when you die. He wants you to know who he is. That's what you signed up for, whether you knew it or not. You signed up for, he's the bridegroom, I'm the bride. And it's not a blind marriage. He wants y'all to get to know one another. He wants, you to, he wants me, he wants us 
to know him as completely and fully as possible this side of heaven. And so he will either, again, orchestrate or take advantage of your circumstances, whatever you, however you choose to see that, in order to reveal himself to you. That runs against some of the common thinking that Jesus really just wants to make our lives easier a lot of times. He wants to, he's kind of this grease that makes the wheels run or the gears run more smoothly. He is our shepherd. He does take care of us. He does lead us. He does guide us. He does protect us. But he's also God, and he wants us to know him more than anything else. And if it takes a little bit of frustration, he'll make that trade all day long. Your frustration for more revelation of who he is. Easy for him. My frustration for more revelation of who he is. My confusion for, absolutely, he will take that trade. And for some of us, we're caught in these circumstances, and we're banging our head against the wall. Why won't you change things? He's up on the mountain praying for more wind and more waves. Not because he's against us, but because he's for us. And he knows the most important thing for us is to know him more fully. That's what he desires for us. It's this whole idea of relationship that he's after. It's why amazement is never enough for him. It's the opposite of the world that we live in, where everything is about fame and celebrity. You just do something for the sake of getting on the cover of a magazine. He he constantly pulls away with the 12. He says, "I, I called them to be with me. He constantly pulls away with them so they can be together. For him, it's not about the show. He's not flamboyant. Hey, look at all this stuff I can do. Let me draw a crowd. He's about the relationships he can develop with these 12 and whoever else wants to come on. And he's the same way with us. Amazement is not enough. Thinking he's a great guy or has great morals, great teaching, or he did some really cool stuff. He can still do some really cool stuff if you need him. Call him when you get cancer. He's the guy for you. He's not looking for people who are just amazed. He's looking for people who have faith, and the disciples missed it, and I think he's frustrated. So he tells them to get on a boat. He prays for a storm. He'll do the same thing with us. Again, it's not out of, he's still compassionate. He gets in the boat with them. They think he's a ghost, for goodness sakes. A ghost? He gets in the boat immediately because they're scared. They're not getting it, and he gets in the boat. John says they're immediately at the other side, and there's no sense. You don't read anything him kissing them or what. You know, there's none of that. He He just keeps going. A couple of chapters, we'll get there, and we'll see Peter somehow got it. He figured out who Jesus was. He's looking for that for all of us as well. Let's pray. This is Romans 12, 1 and 2, our 